John chapter 12. Holy Week is kicked off by Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, the Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And so we are actually going to study the story of Palm Sunday. We're going to study the triumphal entry together, John's account of it in John chapter 12. I've titled my sermon this morning, The Unexpected King, because there were a lot of expectations surrounding Jesus. There were a lot of expectations surrounding the king who was to come in Israel. But one of the things that we see in this story is that Jesus was not at all what the people expected him to be. They were not what they expected their king to be like. And the interesting thing about expectations, even in our lives, is the way that it shapes the way that we view the world around us. The way that expectations color uh, our perspective. For example, you ever been on vacation? And I like to say the week before vacation is usually better than the vacation itself. Because all week you've got this sense of anticipation and expectation of I just can't wait to get away. It's going to be so incredible. It's going to be so awesome. And then sometimes you get there and you're like, that's it. You know, there's that feeling that comes with expectations, how you've been waiting for something and longing for something. And then you get there and you have that, that's it moment. We often do that in marriage. You know, one of my favorite marriage books I read was by a guy named Paul Tripp. And the title of his book on marriage is, What Did You Expect? I think that's excellent because so often we go into marriage with these unrealistic and unfair expectations. And then we judge our spouse based on how well they measured up to our unfair expectations. And we do that in all these different areas of our lives, right? With our careers, with our children, and whatever else it might be, the way that expectations shape our perspective. Well, the Jews of Jesus's day had a certain set of expectations for the coming Messiah. And let's be fair to them. They had a lot of good reasons for these expectations. What were they, what were they expecting? Well, they were expecting a king who would come in the line of David, who would rule over an everlasting kingdom. They were expecting that this king, according to Psalm 2, would rule the nations with a rod of iron. They expected a deliverer who would come. And just as they had been delivered out of bondage to Egypt, as we've been studying in the book of Exodus, they now were under the oppression of Rome. The Roman Empire ruled the known world at this time in history, and they were wanting their Messiah to come and to deliver them from Roman oppression and give them their freedom. They wanted their Messiah to be a conquering warrior that would come and save them from their enemies. Their problem, however, was not that they were expecting a king. They were right to expect a king. Their problem is that they were not expecting the right kind of king. They weren't expecting the right kind of king. They wanted their king to be a political national deliverer who would provide for their physical needs. That's why when Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter six, the Bible says they wanted to try to make him king by force and he got away. That's why Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, Peter, you finally got one right. Then five minutes later, Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. Peter said, no, you're not. And Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. You're trying to keep me from doing what God has called me to do, the very purpose of my mission. They had a certain set of expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like and what he was going to do. And Jesus just loved to blow up their expectations right in their face. And one of the greatest examples of that is the triumphal entry. Likewise, 
I think that many of us can also come to God. We can come to Christ with a certain set of expectations of how my life is supposed to go. I can come to Jesus and say, here are the things I'd like you to save me from. Thank you very much. And sin, sure, we'll throw that in there too. Here are the things I'd like you to save me from, and then I will judge you based on it, whether you've done what I expected you to do or not. We have these expectations that we bring to God, but my hope this morning is that we will lay these before him and we will submit to the king that is, the king that we need. And so here's the bottom line this morning. Here's the main point. In the triumphal entry, Jesus demonstrates that he was not the king we expected, but exactly the king that we needed. He's not the king we expected, but he's definitely the king that we needed. So with this in mind, let's read our story together. John chapter 12, we'll start in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb continued to bear witness and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, my prayer this morning is that we would worship you with all of our hearts, that we would worship you as the true king, the king of kings, the king that we need. Lord, I praise you that you entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to accomplish your mission of dying for our sins and rising from the dead without which we would have no hope. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear you this morning. Let us understand this word. Let us be more and more in love with you today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's place this story in the context of the gospel of John. So John chapter 11 is the very famous story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And there is a really unique response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. If you look at John eleven forty five, it says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus was a very polarizing figure. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Some of them respond with belief and others conspire to kill him. Then we get to verse 54 of chapter 11, which says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness. He's got to lay low for a while. His popularity at this point in his ministry has reached a fever pitch. And now you've got some people who want to crown him and some people who want to crucify him. So he comes to this point and he's laying low. But the time for laying low has come to an end in John chapter 12. And so what does Jesus do? It's pretty audacious if you think about it. They're ready to kill him because he raised Lazarus from the dead. So what does he do? He throws a big party at Lazarus's house. John chapter 12, it's how it begins. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised him from the dead. And they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. They just throw a big old party. I love that. The time for hiding was over and the Pharisees get so mad. Now they don't just want to kill Jesus. John 12 tells us they want to kill Lazarus too. 
They wanna kill both of them. They're so mad. And so what then does Jesus do? This brings us to this story that we're studying this morning. The crowds who were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead start spreading the word and bearing witness about this guy who can even raise the dead. And now Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem, not very far away at all. They start spreading this news and this would have been significant for the timing because again, it's six days before the Passover and the Passover feast in those days, Jews from all over Israel would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Ancient estimates say that the city would swell to about five times its normal population. Josephus wrote there was like two and a half million people in Jerusalem in some Passovers, which by ancient standards was ridiculous, absolutely packed. So right at this timing, when, the, when Jerusalem is packed and these rumors are spreading about Jesus, that's when we come to this story. Jesus enters into Jerusalem as the king. But let's see the few things this story teaches us about Jesus. The first thing this story teaches us is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Let's look at just the first three words of chapter 12. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. Each one of these words is significant. It says the next day. Okay, the next day after what? Let's back up in your Bibles. John 12, one, look at John 12, one with me. Six days before the Passover. Now listen, I'm bad at math. In fact, I took algebra one three times. But I can do this math. What is the next day after six days before the Passover? Five days before the Passover, congratulations. Why does that matter at all? Who cares that Jesus entered into Jerusalem five days before the Passover? Well, I wanna show you that every single bit of this is taking place in God's perfect timing. God is orchestrating every single millisecond here in his perfect timing because it all matters. Why does it matter that Jesus entered into Jerusalem five days before the Passover? To understand that, you need to understand the institution of the Passover. Let's go all the way back to Exodus 12 and read this with me. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, let's just, just put that old file that away in your mind, okay? On the 10th day of the month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of their persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month." when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So I hope you're tracking with me so far. Jesus entered into Jerusalem five days before Passover. On the 10th day of the month was the day that you were to select your Passover lamb who is without blemish and bring him into your homes. And then you would slaughter it on the 14th day of the month, five days before Passover, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Do you see the significance of this? Jesus entered Jerusalem on lamb selection day. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He walks into Jerusalem at the same time that people are going into the flocks and picking out their unblemished lamb that would be their Passover sacrifice. It is as if God is pointing at Jerusalem with all of these people there and this huge crowd saying, that's my lamb. Think about how the gospel of John begins. 
Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, that's my lamb. That's the sacrificial lamb who is going to come and is going to pay for the sins of this people. I hope you can see the incredible nature of this. Everything from the resurrection of Lazarus to Jesus laying low to the party to the swelling of the crowd to the very timing of the day was all in God's perfect plan and perfect timing to show us who Jesus is. Palm Sunday was intended to point forward to Good Friday when the ultimate Passover lamb would be sacrificed so that that blood could cover you and me. But next, this story teaches us that Jesus is the deliverer. He's the deliverer. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what did they do? They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We're starting to see the way that they responded to Jesus entering into Jerusalem. We see both the, what they used, the palm branches, and we see the shout of praise. They understood this by both of these elements that they were welcoming a king. This is a parade where they're welcoming the rightful king into the city. I'd like to look at both of those elements. First of all, let's talk about their cry of praise. Let's talk about that word, Hosanna. This is the word that we use every Palm Sunday. Hosanna is the song that we just sang together. It's what the crowd is singing. But, But what we should understand is that they're actually quoting scripture here. They're quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So when that verse begins with save us in the original language, that's literally Hosanna. We carry it directly over into English. It's the word Hosanna. So that word means save us. In its original context, it was a cry for help. It's a cry for salvation. But over the centuries, it came to be used more as a cry of celebration, a cry of celebrating deliverance that has been received. John Piper illustrated it this way. Let's say that you were to fall off of a diving board into the deep end of a pool and you couldn't swim. I don't know why you'd be standing on a diving board if you couldn't swim, but it's just an illustration. It doesn't need to make sense. So uh, you're in the pool and you start crying out, save me, save me, someone come and save me. That's a cry for help. Then when the lifeguard grabs you and pulls you out of the pool and throws you on the side, you start yelling, you've saved me, right? Your cry for help has been transformed into a cry of celebration for deliverance received. That's what's going on with the word Hosanna. It is crying out to the Lord for salvation and celebrating the salvation that we have received. And church, how much more reason do we have as believers to cry out, Hosanna? Because our King has come and he has paid for our sins and he has conquered the grave and he has overthrown the evil one and he has given us new and eternal life. We have all the more reason to cry out, Hosanna, on Palm Sunday and every day because of the salvation that we've received. But next, I'd like to talk to you about the palm branches. And I think they show us something about the people's expectations. They show us something about the people's expectations. Now, why did they grab palm branches? Was it just because those were the trees they had a lot of and it was a hot day, so they want to fan Jesus as he's coming along? No. The palm branches were deeply significant. And without nerding out on all the details that you probably don't care about, over the last two centuries before this, the palm branch had came to be seen as a nationalistic symbol for Israel. 
having to do with deliverance from oppression. And because of that, the palm branch was deeply significant. It was almost even subversive. It was this idea that this is a national symbol of deliverance. Think for us like a bald eagle or an American flag or whatever it might be. It was the equivalent of that. So by waving palm branches and what did they add to their scripture quote, right? They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. They added the King of Israel. They're waving palm branches and they're saying, the King is here. Now, They were right that he was a king. We already said that. But they were wrong in their expectations of him. What they wanted from Jesus was deliverance from Rome. But Jesus came to give an entirely different kind of deliverance. And what Jesus is about to do now is begin to shatter those expectations. Verse 14 shows us that Jesus is the humble king. Jesus is the humble king. So what does Jesus do? The crowd is getting ready to meet him. They're crying out. They're waving palm branches. It's a large crowd, probably thousands, lining the streets into Jerusalem. What does Jesus do? Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I love that John just says Jesus found a donkey. He didn't need to go into the details. He's like, Matthew, Mark, and Luke already got that. If you read the other gospels, there's this whole long thing about, he tells the disciples, hey, go into Bethany. You're gonna find these two donkeys tied up. You're gonna take them. Somebody asks you about it, just say, Jesus needs it. I'm gonna try that sometime, just kidding. Uh, And so they get the donkey. And it's actually two donkeys, right? There was the donkey and her foal that no one had ever written. So ridden, so a very small donkey. And he brings them back to Jesus. But John was content just to say he found a donkey. And so he gets the donkey and he starts to ride into Jerusalem but I want you to get this mental image. This is Jesus when he's finally going public, right? Up until this point, he even kind of kept his identity a secret. You ever seen those stories in the gospels where Jesus heals somebody and he's like, hey, don't tell anybody. He's finally going public. And the moment when he does, he's riding into the capital city on a donkey, on a baby donkey. It might even look silly to us. This was not exactly a grand entrance, Right, we know the value of a grand entrance. You know, when you go to a wedding and you say, all rise to the entrance of the bride and everyone stands and the doors fly open and Canon and Dee is playing and she's walking down the aisle and it's this grand, beautiful thing. You might even have seen these coronation ceremonies in countries that still have monarchies where the king or the queen strides in elegantly and it's this powerful thing. That's not what's going on here. If you wanted to make a grand entrance as a warrior king, first of all, you would ride a horse not a donkey. And second, you would be followed by an army, not this ragtag group of fishermen that were Jesus's disciples. Yet this is the way that he enters into Jerusalem. And Jesus does this very intentionally. Why did Jesus ride in on a donkey? Well, first of all, I think to show us something about his humility and to show us something about the nature of the kingdom that he was bringing in. But also, John takes pain to show us that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, specifically Zechariah chapter 9. So let's look at this in its original context in the verse that follows in Zechariah. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This prophecy, I think, shows us two things about Jesus. The first is that his kingdom brings peace. It shows us that he came to bring a kingdom of peace. Horses were ridden in times of war, but donkeys were ridden in times of peace. And here's why. Try going to battle on a donkey. It's not going to go well. You'd be better off on foot, frankly. But he rode in on a donkey symbolizing that his kingdom was intended to bring peace. I mean, even think about in 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Again, symbolizing that he is coming to bring peace. Zechariah says that in his kingdom, he shall speak peace to the nations. And let me tell you, is there anything that we long for more in our lives and in our world than peace? Is there anything that we lack more of than peace? Whether it be in the world around us, every time we turn on the news, does it seem like our world is a very peaceful place with war, with conflict, with strife? What about in our own lives, in our relationships, in our families, when we often have family members that aren't speaking or in conflict, or maybe in our workplace, where instead of harmony and teamwork, there's jealousy and gossip. But if outside of us wasn't bad enough, what about inside of us? Does peace most accurately characterize the state of your heart on a day-to-day basis? Or is it more often worry and stress and anger and frustration and fear and all of these things. Our king rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in order to show us that he is the kind of king that brings peace. He is the prince of peace. He makes peace between us and God through the blood of his cross. By faith in him, by the power of his spirit, he gives us peace that surpasses understanding. And best of all, on the day when he returns, on the triumphal entry part two, there is going to be peace among all the nations. The entire world will be at peace. Isaiah 2.4 looks forward to this day. It says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Doesn't your heart long for that day? There's no more war, no more fighting. And we're at peace. His kingdom brings peace, but his kingdom is also universal. It's universal. It's comprehensive. The crowd was right to call Jesus the king of Israel, but they were wrong to stop there. He was the king of Israel, but he is also the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who is the king over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Zechariah says here, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And here's what's fascinating. We're used to the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, but what we have here is the Old Testament quoting the Old Testament. Zechariah is quoting from Psalm 72, which is itself a Psalm about the Messiah. That's what, this is what Psalm 72 says. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. 
That's our king. The king who rules all nations. The king who has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is why this should encourage you this morning. When we put the two sides of the puzzle together, the one who rules over all the nations is the king who brings peace. He's the humble king. And the king who rules over everything loves you. He cares about you. He knows you by name. You are his child. The one who rules everything loves you and is ruling over all things for your good and for his glory. And so often we get worried and we get stressed and we get frustrated and we get impatient and all of these other things in our lives because I'm trying to be my own king because I want to control my own life. I want to rule and reign over my own life. And I want to live with this comforting illusion that I am in control of my life. But the reality is our peace does not come from us feeling like we're in control. Our peace comes from submitting to his control. It comes from submitting to his rule and reign and knowing that he knows best. I'd been reading this devotional by Paul Tripp. I already mentioned him earlier, uh, leading up to Easter. And he had this awesome statement. I've been quoting to myself again and again since I read it a few weeks ago. This is what he said. He said, Christ's march to the cross reinforces for us that our rest and hope are not in our knowing, but in his ruling. The God who knows no surprises will surprise us again, but it's okay because what we don't know, he knows what we can't control, he controls. And because he does, we can live with mystery and surprise and not be afraid. So this morning, let me encourage you, rest in the fact that your savior who knows you, who loves you, who is humble, who gives peace, is the one who is ruling over the world and ruling over every moment of your life. Trust him, rest in him. But the final part of this story shows us that Jesus demands a response. There is no such thing as neutrality with Jesus, but he is such a polarizing person that he demands a response. Let's look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the first response is confusion. Right? His disciples did not understand. I know we're shocked. Uh, they did not understand these things at first. And this is actually a really fun subplot in the Gospel of John. Uh, go through John chapter by chapter, and you'll see that almost every chapter has someone totally missing the point. Just totally missing the point. John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And they're like, it took 46 years to build this temple, man. How are you going to build it in three days? I want him to start working on our new building gets this thing done next week, right? John chapter three, Nicodemus, you must be born again. How am I supposed to do that? It's just to crawl back into my mother's womb. That's weird. John four, whoever drinks this water will never be thirsty again. I want that. I don't want to keep coming to this well. Roll away the stone, but he stinks, right? There's over and over again, they keep missing the point. And Jesus, and the disciples are next in line. They didn't understand what's going on, but here's the thing. Verse 16 says, when Jesus was glorified, then they understand these things. Now, let me ask, what happened when Jesus was glorified that would have enabled them to understand better? Anybody? The Holy Spirit, right? The day of Pentecost, Jesus was glorified. He has ascended into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit and now they get it. Now it clicks. 
This is exactly what Jesus promised would happen in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And the same is often true in our own lives. We can't understand and we can't apply to our hearts what God has revealed without the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2 says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. There's a sense in which an unbeliever and a believer can hear the same message, can read the same passage, understand the same truth on an intellectual level, but being able to receive it in the heart and apply it to the life, that takes the Spirit of God at work in our lives. That's why uh, when I read my Bible in the mornings, one of my favorite things that I often pray before I get started is a little prayer from Psalm 119 that says, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law, that the Spirit, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to understand the word and apply it to our lives. First response we see in this story is confusion. The next response we see is witness. It's witness. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was because they heard that he had done this sign. So the crowd that was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they're now talking about it. They're now going and telling everybody about this guy who can raise the dead. They are now bearing witness about a resurrection of Lazarus. And I love, again, I've already alluded to this, but I just see the fingerprints of God's sovereignty all over this story. How all of this, even the Lazarus miracle, all of the bearing witness, that happened to bring the crowd here now. How all of that is connected. But here's what I like to see here. They were bearing witness about the resurrection of Lazarus. And let me tell you guys, we have a much better resurrection to bear witness to. You know why? Why is Jesus's resurrection better? Because Lazarus is dead again. He's gonna have his second resurrection one day, but for now, he's still in the tomb. But Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering death. Jesus will never die again. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who has conquered death through his resurrection. If they could bear witness about Lazarus, how much more can we bear witness to those around us about Jesus? We encourage you. At every opportunity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what we bear witness to, the miracle that shows that it's all true. Who are you witnessing to about Jesus? And if I could even apply this this way, you know, they were able to gather a crowd through the resurrection of Lazarus, bearing witness to that. How about we gather a crowd next week, bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Amen. Again, I already mentioned it in the intro. Make sure you're inviting people to come and hear the glorious good news of the resurrection of Christ. But the last response in this story is the most tragic, and that's rejection. The last response is rejection. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. These guys are so mad. They're so annoyed by this point because they have been trying at every turn to get Jesus and he just keeps getting more and more popular. More and more people keep following him so that they're just frustrated. They're looking at each other saying, you've accomplished nothing. We've been wasting our time. Look, the whole world's going after him. Obviously that's hyperbole. It just means a lot of people, but it's also in that sense, prophetic. Because the very next verse, we're not gonna study these verses, but if you were to keep going in verse 20, it said that there were some Greeks that were at the festival who wanted to meet Jesus. 
there is a sense in which the world really is starting to come after him and they're angry about it. Here's what we need to understand. The Pharisees had every reason to believe. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen the fulfillment of prophecy. They'd even seen Lazarus being raised from the dead, yet they wanted him dead. Why? Because unbelief, we have to understand this. Unbelief is not first and foremost an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. The reason why people don't believe the gospel and reject Christ more often than not is not an intellectual problem. There's plenty of evidence. It's because they love their sin. We reject Jesus because we've are in our minds because we've already rejected him in our hearts. This is what Jesus says in John 3 when he says, they don't come to the light because they love the darkness. And then they know if they come to the light, then their deeds in the darkness will be exposed. We look at our sin like Gollum and we call it my precious. Even though it's the thing that's killing us, we refuse to be rid of it. And that takes a miracle. The miracle that Jesus calls being born again. So this is the tragic reality of their rejection. They rejected him with their minds because they had already rejected him in their hearts. And this rejection of the Pharisees on Sunday points forward to a greater rejection that's coming on Friday because Jesus entered into Jerusalem to the shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he exits Jerusalem on Friday on the way to Calvary, his ears will still be ringing with the cries, crucify him, crucify him. So I'd like to leave you with a few takeaways as we begin to close this morning. First takeaway is this, what did you expect? What did you expect? When it comes to Jesus, when it comes to a life with Jesus, what did you expect? Because as we see in this story, Jesus came the first time not to be the political warrior king that Israel wanted, but to be the suffering servant that they needed. What they couldn't see was that Jesus came not first and foremost to deal with their enemies, but to deal with their sins. That's why he's going to say five days later, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why when he gets to Jerusalem, does anyone know what the first thing he does is? He doesn't go to the palace and throw out Herod. He goes to the temple and starts throwing out the money changers. That shows where his priorities are. Jesus knew that even if he were to deal with her enemies without dealing with her sins, then eventually they would just be enslaved again or worse they would become the enslavers. If he dealt with the problems outside of them without dealing with the sin inside of them, nothing would be fixed. What they could not see is that they thought that their fundamental problem was their oppression politically, but their fundamental problem was their sin against a holy God. And you and I this morning need to understand the same thing. There might be a million things that this morning you came in thinking that you need. You might've come in thinking, what I need more than anything else is healing. What I need more than anything else is money. I need this broken relationship to be fixed. I need a better job. I need a spouse. I need whatever it might be. But I'm here to tell you that your greatest need is that you stand condemned before the wrath of God because of your sin. And the only person who can deal with that is Jesus. 
What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the sacrificial lamb who came to die on the cross for our sins. As Tim Keller preached on Palm Sunday, he said, we come to Jesus wanting a counselor, wanting a brother, a friend, a supporter, and a savior from the troubles of life. And Jesus says, I can be all of that, but I will be none of that until I am your king until we bow before him and accept him as our king. And so here's the invitation. Let's lay down our expectations of what we want Jesus to be and do and fall at the feet of King Jesus, the one who is, and let him set the agenda. Before Jesus deals with the problems in our lives, he first and foremost needs to deal with our sins because let me just be super blunt with you and super realistic with you. Jesus may or may not deal with those problems. He never promised a life free from suffering on this side of heaven. But what he promises is eternal life. What he promises is abundant life in him. He promises that our sins will be forgiven and that we have eternal life. I took this right from Pastor Sean's notes this week. He said, do you want the saving that Jesus actually came to bring? That's the question that we all should meditate on. The next takeaway is this. Will you respond to Jesus with reverence or rejection? There is no neutrality. You know, I love that Jesus on the reverence side, uh, in Luke's account, the Pharisees come to Jesus and said, hey, please tell your disciples to shut up. And what does Jesus say? He's like, if they stop, the rocks are gonna cry out, but somebody's gotta worship. All of creation was made to worship Jesus. And the question for us is whether or not we're gonna join in. Jesus said the rocks are gonna cry out at his first coming. Y'all know at his second coming, the Bible says that the trees are gonna clap their hands. It's almost like Lord of the Rings and you have the trees walking around or something. It says that the, the, just all of creation is going to burst into song and praise when the king comes to judge the earth. So even now, what does it look like for us to worship King Jesus with all of our hearts? Even on Holy Week, let me invite you Use this week as a special opportunity to worship King Jesus. But will it be reverence or rejection? Because even indifference is a response. It is rejection. Some of you might be thinking, well, that all sounds kind of dramatic, Pastor Nate. You know, Jesus was a great guy. He was a wise teacher. He was a philosopher, all that. I really like his teachings, but I'm not surrendering my life to him. That's a little dramatic. Let me tell you, that is rejection. Because what we are commanded to is surrender. Anything less than surrender is rejection. Let me plead with you. Surrender to King Jesus today. Bow the knee to King Jesus today and receive him into your life as your savior and as your king. And if you wanna speak with someone about that and pray with someone about that, I'd like to invite our prayer team to come forward now. They'd love to pray with you about a relationship with Christ or if you have any other burden that you came in with this morning and would like someone to pray with you, please come and pray with them during the last song or after the service. I'd like to leave you with a final thought. And with that, I'll invite the worship team to come as well. We could have called this sermon the triumphal entry part one because there is another triumphal entry that's coming. Jesus entered into Jerusalem the first time riding on a donkey. And we said, you ride donkeys in times of peace. You ride horses in times of war. But Jesus is coming again a second time and the Bible teaches us he will be riding on a white horse this time with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and a tattoo. Sorry, I like that detail. (laughs) 
He's coming the next time in fulfillment of Psalm 2, where he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So in that sense, they were right to look for political warrior king. They were just off on their timing because that was coming next time. And here's the question. When the next triumphal entry comes, and by the way, Revelation 7 says we'll be holding palm branches. When that happens, will you be among the crowd that's crying out, Hosanna? Or will you be among the crowd that's crying out for the mountains to fall on you and cover you? To hide from his wrath. The choice is yours. And let me plead with you now. Surrender to King Jesus. Bow the knee to King Jesus. Give your life to him. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we love you. We love you. We thank you for your word. We praise you, Jesus, that you are our king. You are our savior. You are our Lord. And I pray that as we leave from this place, you would empower us and enable us by your spirit to live for your glory, bearing witness to your gospel. We praise you in your precious name.